Thanks, Io. What a lovely uh, welcome there, mate. Appreciate that. I saw a 29-year-old man drop dead in front of my eyes at my local gym yesterday. I'd just finished working out and we'd gone into the pool. I was there with my wife and my three daughters and they were, I'd got changed, I'd had a shower and I'd gone into the club room. I was actually watching the football and waiting for the girls. They were, you can imagine how long that's going to take, can't you? And I'm sat watching the football. It wasn't really a game I'd have particularly gone out of my way to watch, but a young 29-year-old footballer in the prime of his life, Christian Eriksen, dropped dead right in front of our eyes on the pitch. No tackle involved, nothing like that. The ball was passed to him and he just collapsed on his face. Fortunately, he's alive and he's well. They got rushed straight on and did CPR. Apparently, he's a Christian, I hear. You never quite know, do you, unless you know the person personally, but I do hear he is a Christian. I know a lot of footballers are, um, as a lot of people are. The, the thing about that, the reason I'm starting with that is that it's, it was actually timely given the topic that I wanted to talk about with you this morning, because... We got in the car to go home, and we're listening on the radio as we're driving home to the coverage and what was happening with him and if he was okay. And what struck me more than anything, and since we're hearing about the social media response and on the telly and all of that, was the open call by people to pray. Yeah, literally, I, I, we've got talk sports on driving home, and you can hear people that I've never heard talk about God ever before. You don't ever hear about them talk about faith or anything like that. And over and over again, time and time again, they are telling, saying about the, the praying for themselves. The phrase, all we can do is pray, came up numerous occasions. There were people all over social media stars all over social media posting, you know, pray for, for Christian Erickson, all of this kind of stuff. And, and suddenly, when we live in a culture and a society that, you know, it's almost, isn't it an unwritten rule that you don't mention prayer and stuff like that on telly? Isn't that the kind of world we live in? You, you must not mention God or Christianity or faith or any of those things because it's a taboo subject. And suddenly, in a moment when something matters and everyone knew there was nothing, there was a few medics there and I'm sure they had a huge hand in what happened. But ultimately, the rest of us, all we could do was watch on. And even those medics knew, they know, they know that the chances of him being revived are not 100%. They could have done what they did a hundred times, and I, I mean, I don't know the statistics, I could have looked it up, but let's say 50 times, that person would have died, 50 times they'd have survived. And so, literally, the response is, pray, we're praying for him, you know, all of that, that's the response over and over again, for, which just struck me in society, the, the turnaround to suddenly be talking about prayer and how we should be praying for someone. And most of you have come here this morning in the hope of hearing a life-changing message. Some of you will have come out of routine because that's what you do on a, on a Sunday. 
anyone heard the phrase, the force of habit? Habits are so important. That's why God tells us to, to make sure we're in church. Make it a habit of going to church on a Sunday. Make it a habit of connecting with him. It's not a wrong thing to come out of habit. But we raise our expectation. I'm sure in the worship, your expectation was raised. Mine was such incredible, powerful worship. And it raises your faith level, doesn't it? Yeah. It raises it. And this morning, I want to show you how or why it is that some people's prayers don't get answered. Why it is that for some people it's harder to pray than for others. Some people, the idea of prayer is, you know, is a challenge. It's, it's like, oh man, that's, you know, a quick prayer here and there, but I couldn't do any more than that. I couldn't sit there and certainly not attend a prayer meeting and sit around with other people and pray. And most churches would say, most most, unfortunately, would say that the prayer meeting, if you will call a prayer meeting, that's the least attended meeting of all meetings. There's a number of people I can see nodding away. And it's true. It's fact. Why is it that the prayer is so difficult for some people? I also want to tell you how you can ensure that your prayers are always answered and what it is that causes them not to be answered. And finally, there's a bonus kind of point, if I can get to it, if there's time, the, the most powerful part of prayer, the most powerful thing of it, and the most powerful aspect. But we need to debunk some myths first, right? So according to a recent survey in the last kind of six months or so, it was done by the, uh, the Christian Institute, was it? Well, it's in my notes. No, Tear Fund. Over 2,000 people. So statistically, that's a good enough sample that you know, you'd expect those numbers to correlate to the population. This was a UK survey. I could give you figures for America. But I think UK, you know, let's talk about UK. We're in the UK. So, and, and they also try ensured that it was statistically the group of people that they asked were proportionally representative. So they didn't just go and ask Christians, okay? It was a proportionally representative survey. 2,000 people, you know, that's, that's a good number. That's normally considered more than enough, enough to be accurate. According to that survey, over 27 million adults in the UK pray. Over 27 million adults in the UK say they pray. There's a graph, Tracy, could we get that up? This is Google's own data. I downloaded this this morning, early hours. This is from 2004 to today, that graph. You can see, as with any graph on data, there's little you know, ups and downs. But can you see what the trend is? The overall trend is up that you can go and search it yourself, go onto Google Trends, type in the word prayer. This is just UK. This isn't even global. This is just the UK. So we're not including, we know there's a number of African countries where the prayer is much higher. We know in the Bible Belt area in America, there's more prayer goes on there and there's more Christianity or Christ, you know, you know what I'm on about. You know what I mean? But this is UK. The trend, and this is the word prayer. This is the search for the word prayer. Since 2004, I think that's when Google's records began on this, to now it is on the incline. So this isn't even just in the last 12 months with coronavirus. 
And obviously, there was a whole load of statistics came out about that, of the number of people that were praying and, and you know, and seeking prayer and looking to, for churches and going to online church. By the way, I think it was 16 to 24-year-olds, no, 18 to 34-year-olds was the highest proportion of people that were looking for prayer and were looking for church in the last 12 months. That was just when they looked at the coronavirus kind of study. Now, and that was more than over 50s. Now, I know you could say that, okay, over 50s, you know, some of them won't be as, as maybe as internet savvy, but my mother-in-law is, 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 I'll just say well over 50, I won't embarrass her by saying how old she is, but she's, she's, she's in, in fact, she's saying, I can say, is, is that 85, 85 Tina is, and, and I tell you, she's fitter than some people 30 years younger than her and, you know, and more astute and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, a real, real life of prayer and a real life of faith. And, but she's internet savvy. She's online and doing the services. No, many of you in here are as well. And the point I'm making is that even though you could say, well, 18 to 34-year-olds, yeah, they're going to be higher proportion you know, on the internet and all of that kind of stuff. I don't think that's just the, the level, you know, the factor that is at play there with that. When I was around eight or nine, a judo club opened up near where I lived, right? And all my mates started going to this judo club, right? I'm like, I'm desperate to go to this judo club, partly because my mates are there, you know what I mean? And just, you know, all of that stuff and judo, wow, how cool would that be? And so I asked my mum and my stepdad and said, oh, can I go to the judo club? Now, I knew before I asked them, the likelihood was that they probably weren't going to let me go. They just were like that. That was just, you know, that was just a family I grew up in. You know, don't want to go with too much into that. But I knew there was probably, but it was all that was in my world. That was it. The only thing that mattered to me as an eight, nine-year-old, I can't remember, eight or nine, I reckon, thinking back, the only thing that mattered to me was getting to that judo club on a Friday night or whatever night of the week it was and being there with my mates and doing judo and getting that nice white kind of, you know, outfit and all of that and the belt that goes with it and the black one, obviously, you know what I mean? You don't really want any other color. And so I was determined I was going to go and I was asking my mum and dad and I was pestering them and I'm I'm begging them and I'm saying, oh, you know, you know what it's like when kids do that. We've got kids, you know what it's like when they're pestering you for something. And eventually, to my surprise, they relented and let me go. So I started going to judo. I was made up. I, and it, they even got me the outfit, the judo, one of them white little judo coats and everything. I don't know where it is now. It's probably long gone. And anyway, been going for a few months. And as happens with clubs and that type of club, they had this like award ceremony this special night that was going to be on, and they were going to do this award ceremony on this night. Now, I wasn't that, that good at judo, didn't necessarily stand out as being particularly good or anything like that, but I was so excited just to go to this award ceremony. It was going to be a special night. I'm eight, nine, you know, they've all sold it, how wonderful it's going to be. And then I think, as I, re I'm trying to, I was trying to remember, the best I can remember is, on the day, I did something naughty. 
right? Which wasn't unusual for me, okay? I was normally doing stuff naughty. When, and that was just me growing up. I was just always naughty. I was a naughty boy, okay? Let's, let's go there. I was a naughty boy growing up. And that, so that wasn't unusual. But I wasn't like terribly naughty. I wasn't robbing cars or anything like that or taking drugs. And that's not, you know, some eight, nine-year-olds even are doing that, unfortunately. But, you know, I, I was naughty. I can't even remember what it was. So it couldn't have been that significant. And they said to me, as a punishment, yeah, honestly, you can't go. You've got to stay at home. I was devastated, absolutely devastated. To this day, I can remember being upstairs in my bedroom, right, and I was distraught. And, and right, I grew up in a, in a non-Christian family, no faith, didn't believe in God, openly disbelieved in any kind of God or anything like that. And I was there in my bedroom praying, praying that somehow I would end up going to this judo club. I am begging. This is, this is my abiding memory of this more than anything else. I can remember begging God. I'm saying to God, God, I will do anything if you let, I'm eight, nine, you know what I mean? <laughs> Just, you know, I'm this big, you know? I'm saying to God, I will do anything. I'll never be naughty again. I'm really, you know, God, please just let me go. Please, God, I'm begging God. I'm eight, nine, you know? And I'm begging him that he'll let me go. I'm just, you name it, and I'm upstairs in my bedroom, it's a summer night, and, and it's getting later and later, and I'm thinking, it's about to start, and come on God, you're going to have to hurry up and answer this prayer, because it's getting close. And he didn't. I never went. I spent the night in my bedroom, absolutely distraught, probably cried myself to sleep. I was, honestly, I was devastated. Who's been there in, you know, some disappointment like that? It's not that unusual, is it? doesn't mean my parents were necessarily cruel. That's another conversation. But <laughs> that's another conversation. I never, I can neither confirm nor deny. Anyway, the thing about that is, right, I wasn't a Christian then. And I wasn't for many years until I got older, late teens, early 20s, and I became a Christian. And my abiding memory of that, the thing I can see it, I can hear it, I can feel it, was me praying. Absolutely praying. I was begging God. I was begging him that he would let me go. From someone who had no belief in God, who didn't believe, in a moment when everything seemed lost, and I know it's an insignificant thing, I'm eight, nine, it meant the world to me. That was everything to me at eight, nine years old. I'm praying and I'm saying, God, will you, I'll do anything, God, I'm begging him, will you do it? And this is why I believe that everyone has prayed Maybe everyone doesn't necessarily pray all the time, but we have all prayed. There was a, a, an occasion, I reckon it was about 10 years ago, you could easily search it up and find out, two aeroplanes in French airspace nearly collided. It was, it was really close to the point, I've shared this, this story before, it, it was really close to the point that one of the pilots had to make emergency maneuvers to avoid it, and the reports all over the press were that people were openly praying in the cabin, 
openly praying out loud. There was none of this silent prayer or anything like that. They were openly praying as they're being thrown around, as this pilot's trying to avoid a mid-air collision and the loss of probably every soul on the plane and probably both, both planes, to be fair. People pray. We all pray. And I believe that is because it is within us. It's innate within us. We know deep down when it comes to it that when no one else can help, that there is only God to turn to. And we're not being hypocritical in one sense. You could argue that. And in some respects, there is a hypocrisy there, absolutely. But the fact that we ultimately turn to God in them moments, in them moments, is what it shows is that we know, we know above all else that God is above everything. That he is over all. It says in the, in the Psalms, day after day, night after night, the heavens declare. It's showing forth God's glory. Everything around us, everything within us is declaring God, his glory and who he is to us. No matter what, whether you go to church or not, whether you've got a faith or not, no matter whether you've had, lived a terrible life and you were a naughty boy like me as you grew up, no matter what it is, we all ultimately have a deep down connection that's there, a pipeline, a connection to God. It's there, and we all know how to do it. So why weren't my prayers answered? Why was it when I begged God, I told him I would do anything, and in that moment, I meant it. I would have literally had to walked over hot coals to gone that night. And, and I, so why? Why aren't sometimes our prayers answered? Many of you will know. Uh, in fact, let's just, I just want to look at a verse. Hebrews 11, one of the most powerful chapters, one of the most famous chapters in the Bible. What it tells us is it tells us if you want your prayers answered, you've got to please God. And verse 6 goes on to say this, it says, and it is impossible, and it is impossible to please God without faith. It is impossible to please God without faith. It says anyone who wants to come to him must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. We have to believe that he is who he says he is and that he will do what he says he will do. He is faithful. He is faithful. But God still didn't answer that prayer. So what was wrong? Where was the lack of faith? Where was the problem? Many of you know the apostle Peter. He was, uh, you know, he was a standout character. In fact, if you looked at the 12 disciples, probably some of you, probably a lot of you would be able to name the 12 disciples if we did a little Bible quiz and, you know, and there was 10 points on, on offer for getting all 12. You know, you'd probably be able to do it, but you'd be scratching around a little bit, struggling, I'm sure. You know, we'd, we'd be, oh, hold on, which one, which one, and trying to go through... But Peter would stand out, wouldn't he? Really easy. Judas. <laughs> Another easy one. Uh, John as well. And we could go on and on and on, the twins and all of that kind of stuff. 
But Peter, I just want to look at two, right? Because there's an interesting contrast, an interesting difference between the two. Peter, okay? Peter was an incredible guy, one of my favorite Bible characters. Love Peter. And one of the things that, that stands out about Peter and that he's written about so much is he was a man of action. Wasn't he? Peter was a man of action. He jumps out of the boat to, to walk on water at the very mention from Jesus. He's cutting off the, 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 uh, the guards here who's come to arrest Jesus. He's declaring that he'll never let him down. You know, everyone else will, Lord, but not me. Not me. I'll never let you down. And on and on and on. And I could list loads and loads of examples of Peter and his outright faith or his outright kind of outward display of his love for Jesus. Because that's what it all was. He, all the way through the, this story, all the way through his time with Jesus, he's out there, right there in front of Jesus, walking on water, declaring he'll never let him down. At one point, Jesus comes to wash the disciples' feet. And Peter declares, no, Lord, you, you, it would be wrong, I'm paraphrasing this, it would be wrong for you to wash my feet, Lord, should be me washing yours. What a guy. What an incredible guy. You've got John. Contrast Peter with John. John is the only gospel. John wrote the book of John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Okay? John declares about himself six times no less the disciple whom Jesus loved. Six times he declares it. No other, no other. <laughs> None of the other three mention it, right? John's there six times the disciple whom Jesus loves, right? <laughs> There's no account of John walking on water no, no declaration, no attempt for John to show his wonderful love for Jesus and look how wonderful I am and look at what I've done, Lord. And, and when Jesus comes to wash John's feet, John's not, oh no, Lord, you mustn't wash my, John's like, I'll just take my shoes off. <laughs> off you go, Lord. You might, well, you missed a bit there. Do you want to just get that little bit? And this is, this is John. It looks like we've got a really boastful, kind of arrogant disciple, and we've got a man of faith. And we have. We absolutely have. Is it obvious which is which? I'm not going to embarrass anyone by asking, because I'm sure some of you must think it's Peter, who's the man of faith. It's the wrong way around. Peter's not the man of faith. Not in this bit. Peter's not the man of faith. John's the man of faith. You see, it sounds, what, what Peter did, walking on water, Lord, I'll never betray you. Lord, don't you wash my feet, I'll wash yours. All of that stuff. Peter's out to impress Jesus. Look at me. Look at how great my faith is, Lord. And probably the other disciples as well. Look, 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 watch me. Whoa, I'm straight in there, I'll dive off. And then he sinks. Straight in there, Peter. He can't wait to do it all. But John's quiet. You don't hear any of these stories about him. 
You just hear this declaration six times that he's the only one that makes the, the disciple whom Jesus loved. The disciple whom Jesus loved. The disciple whom Jesus loved. The disciple that Jesus loved. The disciple whom Jesus loved. The disciple whom Jesus loved. Six times he says it. Six times in his own gospel he says it. Sounds arrogant. Sounds like a boast. Let me, let me give you an example. Anyone who's got kids, or if you've ever been a kid, then you'll know that one of the best things any parent can hear is, oh, Daddy, I love you. But there's something better than that that any parent can hear. There's, there's one thing that's far better to hear as a parent than I love you from your son or your daughter. And it's, my daddy loves me. It's to hear your children declare that you love them. We've all been there when our kids, or if you've got children, you know, they've come and they've brought you a painting or a picture, and it, it's crap in it. <laughs> and you're like, because they're three or four, and you're like, oh, that's brilliant. Well done, son. That's, he's not going to art school. And you know, that, we've all been there and had that, haven't we? And it's lovely, actually. You know, I remember when I was a teacher, and I was in, I was in a school in Liverpool. It was a private school, so my kids were there. And my daughter, Eleanor, in fact, she's on the camera over there. She did this painting for me. And it was, it was crap. It really was. But it was, <laughs> it was on display there in my classroom for all of my classes to see because my daughter had done it for me. And as much as it was rubbish, I'm, I love it because she's done it for me because she loves me and it's a show that she loves me. So I'm not bothered. Let's be honest about it. You're not bothered at the artistic level of it, you know. But it's the feeling, isn't it? So we all love it when our kids do say they love us. It's not that there's anything wrong with that. It's not that that's a miss or somehow inferior or somehow a problem. It's what it is is that when your children declare that you love them, when they're freely, openly saying that you love them, do you know what that says as a parent? That says, job done. I succeeded. I did it. I worked so hard. And they know, they can see it. They can see that I love them. You see, children, here's the, here's the reason why. It's another reason why it's more powerful when they say that you love them than they love you. Children are vulnerable. As children, as little children, they're vulnerable. They rely on you and your love. Without it, they die. If you stop loving them, you stop caring for them. You stop protecting them. As a six-year-old, they die. They die. There was a, a lady, one of the most horrific stories I've heard, really moved me recently, just about six months ago, and she left her baby for six, seven days to go off partying, came back, her baby was dead. And... That's 
children not necessarily at the forefront of their mind, but ultimately in their subconscious, deep down in their heart, they know that they need you as a parent. And so when they're coming to tell you they love you, they're not just, te- they, they are, there is an element, don't get me wrong, don't misunderstand this. There is an element of it that there's gratitude and they love you and there's appreciation. But it's also, I need you because I'm going to die without you. Don't stop loving me. Don't stop loving me. I need you. Now, my Ellen is getting older now. She's in high school. So if you bring me a picture like that, love, I'm going to tell you what I really think about it, right? I expect something far better now because the standard has changed. It's up here now, love, you know? You've matured. I don't expect what I got from you when you were three, four, five, six. I expect different. My older children, I expect different. I treat them differently because they're all different ages. My eldest is 20. My youngest is nine. There's a huge age difference there. There's a different way that I treat them. And that's right. That's normal. But we're not children. And this isn't kids' church. We're mature adults. Kids' church is over there. If this message is too deep, kids' church is in the other building. Pretend you're helping out and go and listen to the message over there. This is, I'm talking to adults. I'm talking to people who want to be mature Christians. I'm talking to people who want to grow in their faith, although I am aware that there is a child in the room. (laughs) And next week, we might want to keep children away, actually, because I'm going to talk about some topics that perhaps aren't suitable for children. But we're not kids. Sorry, I'm just trying to, that was it, yeah. So instead of boasting about your faith and who you are and what you've done and how much you've improved and you're not sinning in this area anymore and you've got the victory over that area and praise God I'm doing this and praise God I've just spoken tongues and I've just done this and I've just prophesied and I've just performed an incredible miracle and all of these incredible things that I've done and look Lord, look Lord I'm, I'm growing and look at how well I'm doing and all of that stuff. You see the thing is Peter's style It's tedious. It's hard work. It's actually impossible to keep up with. You can't succeed by going down Peter's route of constantly impressing and having a fantastic Christian life and doing incredibly well. It certainly won't impress God. He makes it abundantly crystal clear what he thinks about any of our boasting. It's rags, it's nothing. It means it's filthy to him. He doesn't care for it. It puts him off. All of our, all of our good works, all of our deeds, all of our wonderfulness means nothing to him. And certainly when we do it to each other and we are, we're telling God, but really it's those around, look at what I've done. Any genuine mature Christian, not the ones that say they're mature, but the genuine mature ones, they're not fooled. 
Do, do you know? If you want your prayers to be answered, if you want your prayer life to not be tedious, if you want to know why your prayers aren't answered sometimes, then it's when we're spending our time trying to impress God in prayer, instead of spending our time trying to show God how much He loves you. Doing a John. God loves me. Acknowledging the fact that He loves me, that He cares for me, that I am truly and deeply loved. I'm his favourite. I'm the apple of his eye. I'm not necessarily saying you should say you're his favourite because I am. So that would, wouldn't be right. But, you know, you can say, hey, I'm, you know, I'm up there with Barry. He loves me. He really likes me. You know, he's there for me and all of that stuff. <laughs> Why are you laughing? <laughs> Galatians 6. Such a powerful, powerful chapter. And Paul starts it off. It's titled in many Bibles, Paul's Final Advice. I have a friend who's a pastor and he used to be a policeman. And one of the things that policemen are taught is when someone's dying, if they're at the scene and someone's dying in front of their eyes, make sure you record the last words. What they say, make sure you write it down and you, you keep it because relatives want to know. What was the last thing they said? What were the last words? And Paul, these are often titled his last words, his final advice. He says, he starts it off by saying, notice what large letters I use as I write these closing words in my own handwriting. Paul is physically struggling here. He's been in prison. He's been mistreated, abused, living in a hole. And he says this, needs a little bit of explanation. Verse 12, he says this, those who are trying to force you to be circumcised want to look good to others. Now, I'm sure everyone knows what circumcision is. I don't need to kind of explain that. But let's explain what the point of circumcision was and what he was getting at when he was talking about circumcision. What he was talking about was an outward, an external expression of faith and righteousness, perhaps even more so. When Paul's talking about circumcision here, he's talking about being externally right before God, making sure everyone knows, I'm, look at me, I'm fully fledged, I'm spot on me, I'm the Christian, I'm the Christian, I'm the Christian. So you, you could say, he's saying, those who are trying to force you to have an outward expression of righteousness. I'm paraphrasing this, so please understand that. This isn't God's words. But it's a set, effectively, essentially the meaning. Those who are trying to force you to have an outward expression of righteousness. They want to look good to others. 
the ones who are trying to encourage you to look externally righteous, that everyone thinks that you're looking good. And I would say at this point, as opposed to those who are more interested in your heart and where your heart's at. They don't want to be persecuted for teaching that the cross of Christ alone can save. That it is only the cross, the cross of Christ that can save any man. The cross, not any amount of external outward expression of righteousness, no amount of works, no amount of looking good, no amount of impressing, no amount of looking good to the elders and the ones who you want to impress and you want to look good to, no amount of that whatsoever can ever get you saved. The only thing that can ever get you saved is the cross of Jesus Christ. And even those who advocate circumcision, but again, think of this, and you have to think of this like this. He says, listen to this, what he says, and even those who advocate circumcision don't keep the whole law themselves. In other words, their circumcision is irrelevant. It's irrelevant. The hypocrites, the ones who are saying that it's through the outward expression. Because no one can keep the whole law. Only Jesus ever did that. They only want you to be circumcised or you to have an outward expression of your righteousness you to look good on the outside, doing good works, going out and let's look good, let's go out and do a mission around the town and look fantastic. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying we shouldn't do good works. Do you want, that's clear, isn't it? They only want you to do that so that they can boast about it themselves and claim you as their disciples. So that would be like me really whipping it up in this church and getting you all to go out there and do incredible feats around the town so I can go to a pastor's meeting with a load of other pastors and go, look at my church, look at all them, look at all them and what they've done. Have your, your church done that? Not at all. <laughs> you see my worship team? I mean, to be fact, they are incredible, but anyway, but I'm not, I don't tell them to be incredible so I can look good. I tell them to be incredible so God can look good. That's the point. I want them to be incredible so God can look good. Not us. As for me, may I never boast about anything except the cross of Jesus, or our Lord Jesus Christ. All Peter's boasting, all his great acts, they look so impressive, they look so good, it looks so like, oh look, he's the one that's got it all together, because look at him, he's up on the platform doing this, that and the other. Look, I've seen him and I've seen him, and not really seen you do much, so you mustn't have as much faith as them, because I don't see what you're doing, because it's in the background. 
Beware the ones who are constantly trying to impress. Help them. Help them. Help them. Help them to understand that it's immaturity. That it's immaturity. That maturity grows up and doesn't try and impress. Doesn't try and look good. Doesn't care whether people see. Because the only person we ever answer to at the end is God. The only one that matters, the only judgment that counts is his and his alone. And in fact, all the stuff that we do publicly before people, much of it will just be burnt up. Burnt up because you've had your reward here on earth. So there's none left in heaven. You don't need it, you've already had it. As for me, maybe the band could get up. May I never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of that cross, my interest in this world has been crucified. And the world's interest in me has also died. They don't care about me. They've, they've moved on. And gladly so. Doesn't matter whether we've been circumcised or not. It doesn't matter about your outward expression of righteousness. What counts is whether we have been transformed into a new creation. And may God's peace and mercy be upon all who live by this principle. They are the new people of God. If you want to know why prayer can be tedious at times, it's because it's tedious trying to impress someone who you can never, ever impress. It's tedious being in a room full of other people who are trying to impress someone who they can never, ever impress and probably impress you as well. It's tedious. It's hard work. If you want to know why your prayers aren't answered, it's because you're asking amiss. It's because you're trying to impress God with your righteousness. You're trying to earn His his prayer answering miracle because of all that you've done when actually the only thing that can ever get your prayers answered is what Jesus did at the cross. Nothing else counts. Nothing else matters. But in that is the release. In that is true life and freedom and peace because there's a relaxation that it provides. There's a faith that looks arrogant to others because it's the kind of faith that John had who didn't go around boasting or trying to compete with the others to look as good as the others or anything like that. He just quietly declared that God loves me. God loves me. Jesus loves me. And he declared it over and over again. And while Christians, probably through generations, have thought John was pretty arrogant saying that, any About himself as well. Talk about self-promotion being worthless. John going on about it. But he wasn't promoting himself in front of others. He was showing God of his great faith in him. He was showing God that he understood and he knew that God loved him. So he knew that he could never get it wrong. He knew that he was in, in, in peace and in faith and that he'd always be protected and looked after. He knew that nothing mattered in, mattered in this earth because God had his back. And that is life. And life in all of its fullness. If you want to know how you can guarantee that all your prayers are answered, have that attitude that John had. 
Have the attitude that Paul had. Take that and God will answer your prayers. I don't think we had time for the bonus point, did we? But I'll let you get to the, to the team. And God bless, guys. Thank you. <laughs>